Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. Today we are focusing on Acts chapter 25. In this chapter, we find Paul being left in prison in Caesarea. The Roman authorities who have had involvement with his case generally seem to think that he was innocent. In other words, there is no legal reason for him to be in prison. But we see at the end of Acts 24 that he had been left there for two years. There is no doubt that he had been treated unjustly. He did not deserve to be in prison. How does someone trust God when they are being treated unfairly like that? Well, I want us to think about that this morning. Paul had been warned by God that going to Jerusalem was going to result in great trials and afflictions. But Paul had also been compelled by the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem. His difficulties began when he participated in a purification rite in the temple. There were Jews there from Asia who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Paul had had a significant ministry in Asia, especially Ephesus. So he was recognizable. They knew who he was. Well, they accused him of speaking against the Jewish people, against the law of Moses, speaking against the temple. They started a riot there in the temple area with the intention of killing Paul. Roman commander Lysias was his name, rescued him. Paul was given the opportunity to speak to the mob. Well, he spoke of the fact that as a Jewish man, he had put his faith in Jesus as the the, the Messiah that the prophets had, had uh, spoken of. In fact, it was while he was praying in the temple in Jerusalem, he told them that Jesus Christ appeared to him and told him to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. Well, well, this made the mob angry again, and they said that Paul didn't deserve to live. Well, the very next day, the Roman commander arranged for him to speak to the Sanhedrin. He was struck in the mouth for saying that he had lived before God with a clear conscience. And then the council became violent when he spoke of his belief in the resurrection. And once again, Paul had to be rescued by the Roman commander. The very next day, over 40 Jewish men plotted to kill Paul. The Sanhedrin readily agreed to be a part of this murder plot. But in God's providence, Paul's nephew overheard every aspect of that evil plan to shed innocent blood and was able to let the Roman commander know about it. So Lysias, the commander, then had Paul safely escorted by night from Jerusalem to Caesarea. It was in Caesarea that Paul stood before Felix, the governor of Judea at that time, and the Sanhedrin brought accusations against him. They accused him of being a pest who was always stirring up dissension in the Roman Empire. They also said he was a ringleader of the way, which they considered to be a false religion. Paul denied stirring up dissension. Uh, they, he said they had no proof of that. It was actually the Jews from Asia who had started this whole thing in Jerusalem, and they were not there to testify, and they should have been. But he fully embraced being a leader of the way. It was not at all a false religion. In fact, as a Jewish Christian, Paul was serving the God of their fathers. He believed everything the law of Moses said. He believed everything and embraced everything that the prophets had written. Well, Felix basically chose not to further pursue this case with the Jewish leaders. He didn't think, didn't seem to think that Paul or the way was a real threat. And a few days later, Paul was able to very forcefully 
actually bear witness of the gospel to both Felix and his wife, Drusilla, whom he had obtained through adulterous means. Felix trembled under the realization that as a sinner, he would have to stand before God and give an account for his sins. He rejected Jesus Christ, but he, and he sinfully suppressed his conscience in the matter and focused instead on trying to get a bribe from Paul. Well, at the end then of chapter 24, we see that Felix was succeeded by another man named Portius Festus. But Felix, instead of letting Paul go free, which was the custom since he was leaving office, he left him in prison because he wanted the Jews to give him a good report because he was going to have to return to Rome and give an account to Caesar for what his, how he had governed. And his hope was that the Jews would speak well of him if he left Paul in jail. Well, they didn't, but that was his reason. So for two years now then, Paul has been imprisoned in Caesarea even though he had committed no crime. He was treated unjustly, and that unjust treatment is going to continue in what we read about in Acts 25. So in this chapter, we see the legal management of Paul's case continue. So I'm going to read the whole chapter for you, and then we'll talk about some things related to these verses. Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you yourself very well know. So then, I, I, so if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Now, when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answer them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. 
So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial on these matters, but when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, Accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said to King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, You see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you, before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. So Festus, the new governor, goes to Jerusalem, the major city in his his region, and is urged by the Jews to bring Paul there to Jerusalem to answer charges. Festus refuses, says, no, you can come with me to Caesarea, and we'll do it there. Well, at the hearing, Festus asked Paul if he's willing to go to Jerusalem to stand trial. Paul said no, and as a Roman citizen, he appealed to Caesar. Several days later then, Agrippa, another ruler in the Judean region, comes to welcome Festus in his new role. Festus tells him about Paul and says that he needs help in figuring out what to charge him with when sending him to Caesar. So another hearing is set with Agrippa and his wife Bernice being the one that Paul must now appear before. Paul, I'm sure, was a patient man. Uh, Paul was also well aware that the Lord had made it clear to him that bonds and afflictions awaited him when he would arrive in Jerusalem. He was being treated unjustly while magistrates went through the motions of addressing his case. How do we deal with things like that? How do we deal with seeing government leaders regularly make what seem to be unwise and sometimes ungodly decisions? How do we deal with frustrations like that? In order to address these things, I think as a Christian, we have to try to reason according to biblical truth. And when we do that, when we, when we try to reason through things according to biblical truth, that gives us ground to be able to walk by faith, even in frustrating circumstances. Well, Paul's situation is very much tied to the arena of civil government. So we need to remind ourselves of some of the biblical basics about civil government. We also need to consider some truths related to how God works in history. And I believe God can use both those things really to help settle us to be able to trust him even when we see frustrating things going on around us. So, first, believers understand from Scripture that God ordained civil government and and determined its proper function. 
He ordained civil government and determined its proper function. So Paul understood civil government, obviously, quite well. He wrote really the best known and probably most often used text in the scriptures about it in Romans chapter 13. In, that first, in the first verse there, Paul says, There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So Paul reminds us here that God is the ultimate sovereign authority. There is no one, there is nothing above him. There is no authority except from God because God alone is God. And as the ultimate sovereign authority over all, God has ordained several spheres of authority. He has established the family, the church, the civil government as specific spheres of authority. We could also include institutions like schools and businesses. So God is the one who has established civil government as an authority structure. And we see that authority structure show up multiple times through Acts 25. Well, first in chapter 24, we saw that Felix was the governor in Judea. He was replaced by the Roman Caesar with Festus. The leading men of Jerusalem understood they have to go to Festus regarding the situation with Paul. When they come to Caesarea, we see that Festus took his seat on the tribunal, on the judge's bench, in other words, and ordered Paul to be brought. This is all civil magistrate. This is all civil government stuff. In verse 7, the Jews brought their charges against Paul to Festus as the one who had the civil authority in the matter. In verse 10, Paul acknowledges that in standing before Festus, he was standing before Caesar's tribunal, Caesar's judgment seat. And it was before Caesar's tribunal then that Paul made his appeal to take his case directly to Caesar then in verse 11, and Festus granted that request. We then see in verse 12, another civil magistrate, King Agrippa, comes into the picture. Festus explains the legal situation uh, concerning Paul with him to try to get some legal counsel. Festus understands that the legal charges against Paul need to be clear. Here's what he says in verse 15 and 16. He says, When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered him and said, That is not the custom of the Romans, to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against those charges. These are some details really about how civil government is supposed to function. Well, then when arrangements are made for Paul to stand before King Agrippa, here's what Festus says at the end of the chapter. He says, I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord, meaning to write to Caesar. Therefore, I brought him before you all, especially you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. Seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Again, these are clear details on how civil government is supposed to function. It's God who has ordained the civil authority, and we need to be reminded that that civil government, again, is there because God has ordained that sphere of government. So what is the assignment that the ultimate sovereign authority has given civil government to do? Well, next on your outline, point A is this. Civil magistrates are to govern in such a way that those who do right are praised, and those who do wrong are punished. Those who do right are praised, those who do wrong are punished. 
Once again, Paul wrote very clearly about this in Romans 13. Let me just read verses 3 and 4 for you. He says, Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So in other words, the God-given function of civil government is to ensure that justice is served. It's encouraging to see that Governor Festus is seeking to get clarity on what the charges against Paul are. As he said in Acts 25, 27, it's absurd to send a prisoner to stand trial in Rome and not to indicate what the charges against him were. Well, that's right. That's in line with what the God-given responsibility of civil government is. On the other hand, there are things in how Paul's case was handled that do not fit with how God ordained government to act. When Lysias, the Roman commander, sent Paul to Felix in Caesarea, he also sent a letter explaining the situation. We have a copy of that letter in Acts 23. And it's clear from that letter that Lysias did not believe the charges against Paul were serious. He says the charges, they were charges from the Roman leaders regarding questions about their own law. He said, but there were no accusations deserving either death or imprisonment. Well, when Felix then heard the charges from the Jewish leaders and then heard Paul's response in Acts 24, it seems that he was in agreement with what Lysias wrote. He basically dismissed the case and did not address it again while he was in office with the Jewish leaders. But is that justice? No, it isn't. If Paul was innocent of charges, he should have been released. Why wasn't he released? Well, several reasons for that. One is because Felix was trying to get Paul to give him a bribe to let him go free. There's no justice there. And Paul would not cooperate. Secondly, there was a desire on the part of the Roman governors to not anger the Jewish religious leaders. We see in Acts 24, 27 that the reason Felix left Paul in prison after his term was up was as a favor to the Jews. That's not justice. But then we see, but we also see Festus, who is Felix's successor, doing the same thing. In Acts 25, 9, Festus asked Paul if he was willing to go to Jerusalem to stand trial. The reason he did this was because he was doing the Jews a favor. Again, this has nothing to do with biblical justice. It is sinful and it was wrong. So once again, if you are Paul, you have every reason to be frustrated. Another problem that keeps civil magistrates from dispensing true justice is this. There is a temptation to those in authority to give too much attention to exalting themselves. Too much attention to exalting themselves. It's very easy to let authority go to your head. And we are all prone. We are all prone to the sin of pride and selfishness. Civil magistrates should recognize that their job is to honor the God who placed them in their role. And they should see themselves as a servant of the people 
that they have been placed over. But it's easy to see it as a chance to make a name for yourself. It's easy to make your advancement, your personal desires, even financial gain, be like the end all. In Acts 25, 23, the things that Luke tells us about Paul's appearance before King Agrippa and his wife Bernice and just kind of the circumstances surrounding that are really are quite interesting. Let me read verse 23 for you again. This is Acts 25. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So Agrippa and Bernice enter amid great pomp. In other words, they were richly, lavishly dressed, probably with gold and pearls. They had a great retinue of people who served their every whim. This was meant to make a great show and to dazzle the crowd of important people who were around who had gathered. When civil magistrates focus on exalting themselves, it's very likely that true justice for others is going to be compromised. But there's another example of this on the part of the Jewish leaders. They also had a level of authority. They were officially known as the Sanhedrin. They too were to honor God and to serve the Jewish people. And they very specifically were to govern consistently with the law of God. That's right. That's one of their complaints against, against Paul. They said he's not honoring the law of Moses. Well, obviously, they considered themselves as doing that. But look at Acts 25, 2 and 3 and see what their motives were in wanting to further examine Paul. It says, The chief priest and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. So the whole purpose was to get it, was to get, to get Paul out of, the, out of a custody there in Caesarea, out in the open, so he could be ambushed and they could kill him. It was that murderous heart that motivated them two years earlier to try the same thing. So as flawed as the Roman authorities were, the Jewish leaders were worse. They were willing to flagrantly break God's commandment, you shall not kill, just to get rid of Paul. They knew he wasn't guilty of any crime, but they wanted to take matters into their own hands and act on their hatred for Paul. This is self-exaltation at its worst. This is saying, God, I know what your law is. Forget that. Here's what I want. That's self-exaltation at its worst. The motive to exalt ourselves is to make much of ourselves, is to make ourselves look high and superior and impressive in the sight of others. We want people to make much of us. Probably the most dramatic example of how wrong and foolish this is, especially in, in, in light of uh, civil government, is seen in Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He was the king of Babylon at that time. And in Daniel 4:30, it says that he was out and he was reflecting as he was looking over 
beautiful Babylon, the great city. And he talked about what a great city it was by the might of his power and for the glory of his majesty. This is what Nebuchadnezzar was saying about himself. Well, he was immediately rebuked by God. He was driven away and began to eat grass and live like a wild animal. That's the ultimate example of how bad it is to exalt ourselves. It makes us more like an animal than a human being. John Piper made this interesting observation. He was specifically talking about Nebuchadnezzar, but uh, it's true, generally speaking. He says self-exaltation is, in fact, dehumanization. Self-exaltation is, in fact, fact, dehumanization. We think it's making us better than everyone else when, in fact, it's completely foolish. It is our attempt to dethrone God and put ourselves in his place. We think we have gained significance when, in fact, we have actually lost hold of reality. The focus of man, whether in government government or, or anywhere, any of us, the focus of man is not the glory of man. The focus of man must always be the glory of God. Anything else is foolishness. One more thing to look at regarding the place of God-ordained civil government. Citizens are called by God to rightly submit to authority, which includes their responsibility to hold the magistrates accountable when possible. In Romans 13, again, Paul speaks of our obligation before God to submit to those in authority over us. And we clearly see Paul doing that in the situation that he's in. But we also see included in the understanding of submitting to authority that proper submission includes calling civil magistrates to account for bad behavior. Paul calls for submission to authorities, as I said, in Romans 13. But then here in Acts 25, he rejected a request by the governor outright. In verse 9, Festus says to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Paul emphatically rejects the governor's request, but he doesn't just reject it. For all practical purposes, he then rebukes the governor for forcing a man he knew to be innocent to continue to answer trumped-up charges. Look what he says in verse 10-11. Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul had the opportunity to hold the magistrate accountable, and he took it. That's right, submission. And, of course, you probably know this isn't the first time he's done that. Paul did something similar when the Roman commander, Lysias, rescued Paul from the rioting mob in Jerusalem. And and the, and the, the commander was planning to scourge Paul to find out what he had done. Well, Paul challenged this 
wrong-headed decision and said he was a Roman citizen. Therefore, he could not be scourged. And on top of that, he had not even been charged with a crime. So he challenged the Roman commander, and the commander backed off because he knew Paul was right. Back in Acts 16, we saw that he also challenged the civil authorities in Philippi for arresting and beating and imprisoning he and Silas without a trial. He called them to account on that. So Paul's understanding of submission allowed, and I would say even required, holding civil magistrates accountable for their actions when there is an opportunity to do so. But as Paul considered the unjust things that he was enduring in Acts 25, there's another thing that would be of help to him and I think to us in thinking through those situations. So our second main point is this. Believers can rest in the fact that the course of history lies in the hands of God. The course of history lies in the hands of God. So God is not only the one who is sovereign over civil magistrates. He is the one who is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over every aspect of history. And this is so important for Christians to keep in mind. Paul knew that the Jewish leaders were looking for any opportunity to kill him. He was under the control of Roman civil magistrates who kept him imprisoned when they knew he was innocent. Paul also knew that they were making decisions about his guilt and his innocence to keep the Jewish leaders happy. And for two years, he was in prison for no good reason. It would definitely make you feel like you were nothing more than a pawn. It might make you feel like two years of your life had been wasted. You'd be tempted to wonder, where is God in all this? I have no doubt that Paul called to mind something else he wrote in his letter to the Romans, something that has been a great comfort to Christians for thousands of years, which is this. We know that God causes all things, has stopped there for a minute, all things, which includes unfair treatment, the fallout from ungodly magistrates, and even those who may hate us for no good reason. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God's good purpose is that all believers be conformed to the image of his son. And absolutely nothing can frustrate God's purpose. We are never in a situation where God says, man, that's beyond me. I'm not sure what to do now. Nothing that, is, that we are faced with, whether it's personal, whether it's whatever the issues might be, nothing like stymies God's purpose where he doesn't know what to do next. He is always at work in everything for those who love God and are called to his purpose. In other words, those who are Christians. This is a verse that it is right and proper, I think, to give serious attention to when things are going well or when things are going, are going difficult. And I would encourage you, and this is an encouragement to myself because as I was thinking through this, I thought I need to make a lot more application of this myself. Go beyond just reading this verse or, or quoting it. 
most of us probably know that verse by heart. Go beyond just quoting the verse by heart. Think about the words. Think about the phrases. And make specific application in your life from those words, from those phrases. Think about it slowly. And make application deliberately in your life. In Paul's case, I'm sure he did that. Paul also had a more direct word from God that I'm sure helped him deal with his frustrating situation. When he was converted on the road to Damascus, the Lord called him to be an apostle and made this known to him. It says this, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. In these last few chapters, and Paul has had and will continue to have in the next chapter, opportunities to speak to kings and those in authority, just like he was told he would. And, of course, he has had those opportunities. Why? Because of the hatred of the Jewish leaders, because of the unfair, unjust treatment of the Roman magistrates. God was causing those sinful things to give Paul opportunities to preach the gospel to people he would not otherwise have had that opportunity to do. He was using their sinful things. God was to give Paul these opportunities. You think that could ever happen again? Yes, it happens all the time. History lies in the hands of God. So this next one in your outline is important. Believers must remember that the rise and fall of nations, kings, and all in authority is according to God's sovereign decree. Go back to Daniel for a couple things here. Daniel 2.21, he says this. It is God who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes or sets up kings. So here, it is God through the Roman Empire who placed a ruthless man like Felix as governor of Judea. It was God who made sure he was there for Paul to share the gospel with him. It was God who then removed Felix and replaced him with Portius Festus. It was God who put King Agrippa in power at the time of Paul's imprisonment as well. And as a result, Paul is going to have the opportunity in the next chapter to preach to Festus, Agrippa, and his wife Bernice, along with other officials all at the same time. And we should also say this, as far as those God rises people up, pulls them, that doesn't mean that every civil magistrate is a good person and is always qualified for the job. It doesn't mean that at all. We can get into biblical qualifications, but we don't have time to do that. But God often uses wicked men and women to accomplish his purposes. We should pray for kings and all in authority so that we can lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And by, when it says in all godliness and dignity, that means everything that, that, that is involved in li, li, living a godly life is legal and encouraged and not hindered. That's what we're supposed to pray for, according to Paul according to the Bible, according to God. In addition to this, one more main point. Believers should be encouraged that God overrules all things in history for the good of his church. For the good of his church. It would be easy for those Christians 
who were aware of Paul's situation to be pretty discouraged. The great apostle that God had used in such amazing ways to build the church was now imprisoned. We know that in his imprisonment, it was there in Caesarea, so we know that, in, and we, all, we also were told that he was allowed to have visitors. And we read earlier, uh, this is in earlier chapters, that there was a pretty strong church in Caesarea. So I'm sure he had regular visitors from the church in Caesarea. And you can imagine in their prayer meetings how often they mentioned Paul and how concerned they were for him, praying for what's going to happen to him next. But this does not mean that the work of building the church had come to an end just because of what was happening to Paul. The other apostles were still actively ministering in various places. There were churches now all over the Roman Empire who were continuing to preach the word and minister. A number of New Testament books and letters had already been written and were already in the process of being multiplied and passed around. Christ was still very much at work, still very much at work while Paul was in prison. One of the most encouraging scriptures for me in this regard, I'm going back to Daniel 2 again because he has so much to say that I think apply here. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is interpreting a dream that uh, the king of Babylon had. And you'll remember it, it was a, a statue that he saw made up of different kinds of materials. You know, uh, the statue, the, uh, the top uh, part of the statue represented the Babylonians. And then the next part represented the Medes and Persians. Next part represented the, the Greeks. And then finally, down to the feet, represents the Roman Empire. They also saw, he also saw in this vision a stone, it says, that was not made by hands. It struck the statue at the feet, in other words, during the Roman Empire, and destroyed it. But that stone then grew and became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Here's what it says about that stone. In the days of those kings, that would be the kings in the Roman Empire, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. This is speaking of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that came into history during the Roman Empire. And by the spread of the gospel, the growth of the church, it began to fill the earth and it continues to work to fill the earth. The New Testament, of course, tells us how this happened in Jesus Christ. The Son of God took on human flesh. He lived a righteous life. He then died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. When he rose again, the salvation of all who would believe in him was confirmed and completed. And Acts tells us about how the church began to expand and began to grow. Paul is a big part of that. But this is only the beginning. There's a lot more to come. One thing that's interesting here, I don't know if you even noticed this. When Felix was talking to Agrippa and trying to give him some understanding of what was going on with Paul's case, here's what he says in Acts 25, 19. He says they just have, they have some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Just some dead guy. 
Jesus. Paul thinks he's alive. <laughs> that dead man, Jesus, who Paul thinks is alive, that's what that whole kingdom that is fulfilled, that is expanding over the, over the world, that's what that's all about. If I remember right, Festus is going to die in about two years. His kingdom comes to an end pretty quickly. Jesus' kingdom has not come to an end. That dead guy who Paul thinks is alive, his kingdom has not come to an end. It is continuing to grow in nation after nation after nation. Yes, there's all kinds of things in the world that are anti-Christian, to be sure. But the Lord is also working, consciously working in the life of thousands upon thousands of millions of people through churches large and small all over this globe. Christ is overruling all things in history for the good of his church. When we see things that are discouraging, we need to remember that that is not the whole story. We can and must continue to trust the Lord to complete that gospel work that he has started. And he will do that, and he is doing that. Lord, we do thank you very much for your word. We thank you for examples here that we see that Paul was dealing with. Um, we don't deal with exactly the same thing, but there's definitely some similarities. But Lord, thank you for just for, just for these kinds of examples that we can see. And I thank you for how Paul actually gave us ways to understand this in some of his other writings, some of his letters. Lord, I thank you that you are the one who is sovereign over all. Thank you so much that you are the one that we can trust. You move in mysterious ways like we sang earlier, but you are the one who rules. And we thank you so much that that is the case. We thank you for the work of the gospel that has begun. We thank you for the work of the gospel that you've begun in our own lives, in our own hearts. Thank you for continuing in us to help us work through, to help us make that application, knowing all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Lord, help us to make applications of that on a regular basis. I forget that such important truth so much of the time. Don't let us forget it. Help us to apply it, especially when we're feeling discouraged and frustrated. Thank you that you are always at work, and we can trust you in that. If you're one who has never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize I have not measured up at all to what you require. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can either make a note on your tear-off from your bulletin or those who are uh, watching us through the website can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray.